Great singing this morning, good words, praise to the Lord. We're in uh, Luke chapter 9 this morning. All right, Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse uh, 27. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. This event is known in theological circles as the transfiguration. Now, last week, I gave you a challenge to go out and talk to your friends and neighbors and relatives and ask them one question. And uh, some of you I know, I've already heard, ask that question of your friends or neighbors or relatives or coworkers or what have you. And you've come back with stories of quite an interesting array of, uh, of answers. Who is Jesus Christ? Michael, I think, is going to share some of those answers in a future uh, meeting. But when the disciples were asked the question, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ of God. Jesus is the Messiah, the Lord who will set up his kingdom on the earth and will uh, sit on the throne of David. And the Jews of his day were waiting for that time when Jesus would come or when the Messiah would come and would set up his earthly kingdom um, there in Jerusalem. Peter was right. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ of God. That's what he said. But the problem is that the disciples did not know that Jesus would first have to suffer and die and be raised again the third day. They did not know that there would be a period of more than 2,000 years between his coming to die and his coming to reign. And as they look at, at the Old Testament scriptures, they saw only one coming. And that was his coming to reign. They saw only one coming. They ignored all the verses that had to do with his suffering and his death and his burial. And they focused only on the verses that had to do with his reigning uh, in his glorious kingdom. So we have a diagram we want to hand out to you uh, this morning. And as you're waiting for it, you could turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, and as we read these verses, you may see why they didn't get it. 
Okay, so Isaiah chapter 9, let's begin with reading uh, verse 6. We, uh, interesting, we just sang that Christmas song that should be, um, as Dave said, a different song, different place. But here we have in verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward even forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so as you read this passage, there are actually two comings of Christ here. But it's separate, they're separated by a three-letter three letter word. Um, and so the first verse for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given refers to what his incarnation the coming at his birth and the government shall be upon his shoulder and so on refers to what did he reign on the earth then no he did not but it refers to his second coming when he will come to the earth and he will reign um, over all so there are other verses that are similar to this where the two comings seem to just merge together. Very difficult to see the distinction unless you're living on this side of the cross. So in your handout, the first diagram shows an Old Testament believer such as Isaiah or the disciples. And as they're looking at the scripture and they're reading passages like this or hearing passages like this, they see the, the first coming and the second coming of Christ almost like two mountain peaks merging together. They can't distinguish them, and they can't see that there's a valley of at least 2,000 years in between the first and the second coming. And so I understand why they might have been confused. Um, the second part of the verse has to do with the Lord Jesus Christ coming to the earth to set up his millennial kingdom um, uh, and to reign from the throne of David. The fact that Jesus came the first time is evidence that he is coming again. Amen. Jesus will come again. What the disciples did not understand, as I said, that there's this 2,000-year period between the two comings. We are in, as you see in the diagram, the church age. That's what we experience now. And, and we are in a very um, uh, blessed position, if you will. We're in the center and we're looking back. I don't know how you do back from your side. Okay, so back is that way, right? Back to the cross, and we're looking forward to his second coming uh, for us. Now, even the second coming is broken into two phases. And so I have a second diagram there, and we see that the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the Scripture, is coming, first of all, to the air. Uh, he is coming again. And there's a, the first part of his coming is to the air, and there he will gather those who have died in faith, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation, and he will raise up those who are not dead but are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation, and together we will meet the Lord in the air. But once again, there's a valley between that first part of his second coming and the second part of his second coming where he will come with his saints to the earth 
and he will reign uh, over all the earth. So just distinguish it in your own mind. Some of you know this already. The first part of his second coming is he is coming for his saints. The second part of his second coming is that he is coming with his saints. We will be with him when he comes finally to the earth and sets up his kingdom on the earth. And when he sets up on his kingdom on the earth, oh, it'll be a glorious kingdom. It'll be a kingdom like no other kingdom the earth has ever seen before. In fact, the earth will be transformed. To fully describe the character and the blessing of this time period, we would have to stay here all day long and into next week to go over every verse and every part of uh, what is going to take place on the earth. It's absolutely phenomenal. It is an amazing um, uh, time period. And we cannot exhaust the blessings that are to come with Jesus Christ reigning as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But I will try to summarize them, okay? So we'll, I won't take even all afternoon. But we're going to summarize some of the things that are going to take place on the earth. His kingdom will be a theocratic kingdom. What does that mean? Theocratic. Sorry? God rules. God rules. Okay? Do you remember Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, one of the greatest kings that ever lived on earth, and his proud and arrogance? He raised a, 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 a statue for himself that all might come and bow down to it. He was the greatest. But God had a lesson to teach King Nebuchadnezzar, and he made him like the cattle of the hills, and he got on all fours and he grazed and ate uh, the grass like a cow chewing its cud, basically. And until he came to his senses and he looked up to heaven and he said, heaven rules, which is the same thing as saying later in the passage, God rules. Okay? He recognized clearly, you know what? I am nothing but a speck of dust on this planet. And, and, and when he writes about what took place, it's very clear that uh, he had a salvation experience where he repented of his pride and his arrogance and he trusted in the living God. There is only one king of kings and lord of lords and he will not share his glory with another. It is a theocratic kingdom. God will set up his rule on earth in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God and he will set up his rule on planet earth. Jesus will take the throne of David in Jerusalem and will set up his kingdom there. But the kingdom will be a heavenly kingdom because the God of heaven will rule on the earth. Finally, we will enjoy his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for it. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In that day, it will be done. Israel will be regathered. Israel will be converted. Israel will be given a new heart. And the people of, of, of uh, they will become his people once again. This is what it says in Jeremiah 31, 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Or as some of you went out and said last week, Who is Jesus Christ? For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Israel 
will finally inherit the land that God promised to Father Abraham. And Israel will be head of the nations, and all of the nations of the earth will come to Israel and worship the king. God himself will do as he promised in Psalm chapter 2. I have set my king on my holy hill. He will be their God. They will be his people. And he will put his law in their heart. There will be peace on earth. I'll tell you, this world is in trouble. It is really seriously in trouble. Tom, Angelo, you guys know it probably better than we do. But, but there is such unrest. Uh, and, and it's just seething under the surface. But in that day, there will be peace. Why? Because the Prince of Peace will rule. He will reign. The kingdom will not be just a, a political or a, a material kingdom, but it will be a spiritual kingdom where uh, sin is punished quickly and holiness is the rule of the day. We will worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. In uh, Zechariah, it says that, it says, uh, in chapter 14, it says this, In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Not only the people, but everything will be sanctified, set apart for His glory and for His use. The animal kingdom. The animal kingdom will be now subject to the king of kings as well. They will be domesticated. For It says, we read that it, the lion shall lay down with the lamb. In Isaiah chapter 11, we read this, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a child shall lead them. A cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We've never seen anything like it. There's never been a rule like this, but there will be when Jesus reigns. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away, Isaiah 35 tells us, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return. And come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. How often we start the day with a sigh and we end it with the same way. It's all going to be gone. There will be springs of water where there were once desert, ponds in the wilderness. Righteousness shall be the rule for the king of righteousness shall reign. The meek shall inherit the earth. No more climbing the corporate ladder. Violence will end. Death, we read, will be rare. It says that when a person dies at 100 years old, they'll be like a child. And the joy of the Lord will be our strength. Micah says, He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, 
and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. A couple of weeks ago we had um, a secret group of language learners that came who are military experts who are being sent overseas to fight wars, basically, through words. And uh, some of them came from a background of extensive military training, and um, some of them actually were schooled down in um, Monterey, thank you very much, uh, where there's a language training institute, basically, for the military. Very, very sharp people learning war, learning war. But in that day, all the instruments of war will be used for peaceful and productive services uh, for the king of peace will reign. Healing will go out to the nations, and the earth and the people of the earth shall be fruitful and multiply. Isaiah 35 says this, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf, deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing, For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. In Isaiah 55, it says, For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountain and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And the Lord sets up His reign on the earth. The nations shall bring their riches, their treasures to Him as an offering. Psalm 72 verse 8 says this, For uh, He shall have dominion also from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow down before Him, and His enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. Later in that same psalm it says, And he shall live, and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually. And daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth. On the top of the mountains its fruit shall wave like Lebanon. And those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun. And men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The disciples were taken up to the mountain. I know we forgot that part, but that's what this is all about. They were taken up to the mountain. And the Lord Jesus took them there as he prayed. And before their eyes, he was transfigured. Really, the best way I can describe, I think the word is uh, metamorphosis or something like that, but the idea is this, that he was transformed in front of them. Something that they had not seen before. 
they were now able to see. And it was like the veil that clothed him or that hid him from view of his true person was revealed. It was taken back and they saw for the first time his glory. But the Lord Jesus had told them that he must suffer first, be killed, and rise again the third day. They did not know that his plans included the Gentiles too. Praise the Lord. For most of us here are now included. (laughs) They did not know that the gospel would go out to the world for about 2,000 years. Jesus went up into the mountain to pray with three disciples, Peter, James, and John. And as he prayed, his disciples became very, very sleepy but were awakened by an awesome sight. Eight eight days earlier, Jesus had told his disciples in uh, Luke 9, 27, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Eight days later, on the eighth day, uh, three disciples saw the kingdom of God. How? Well, they saw the Lord transfigured. And as we read in the scripture, um, like I said, it's, it's as if a veil had been removed, and they saw the Lord uh, no longer as a lowly servant, but they saw him as the exalted and glorified king. No longer was he clothed in servant's attire, but his clothes became brilliant white, whiter than any um, launderer could make white. There's no bleach on earth that could make it as white as that. In Mark chapter 9, it says this, his clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launder on earth can whiten them. In Matthew it says, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. For a brief moment, the Lord pulled back the curtain. He took away the veil, and the disciples saw the Lord in his glory. What a sight. What a sight. What a privilege for them to have seen who Jesus is. Peter had already declared, you are the Christ of God. And this only confirmed what he had already uh, said. Notice that it's not a reflected light. It's not that there is someone greater than the Lord and that light is being reflected off of him like it was with Moses. But instead, this is coming from him. It is emanating from him, from his person. That's who he is. It speaks of the glorious nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke 9.30 it says, And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. We learn that Moses and Elijah are there. They appear in glory. That is, they appear in their glorified state, in their glorified bodies. Well, it raises some interesting questions, doesn't it? And I'd like to submit to you that Moses represents the law. And Elijah represents the prophets. And all of the law and all of the prophets point to one figure, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm not surprised that they are the ones who are here. Another thing we remember, uh, well, the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, is the fulfillment of all of the law and all of the prophets. One of the things that we learn from the Old Testament is that the bodies of both of these men were never found. You remember that uh, Moses disappeared. The Lord buried him, gave his own burial. I'm sure that had uh, they buried him, there would be 
shrine upon shrine there today as a place of worship. But God didn't want worship to Moses. Worship belongs to one person, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Elijah never died. He was transformed. He was taken up into heaven without dying. The next thing, we see them both in glory with the Savior. And it is possible that in this instance, they represent believers who will be with Christ in glory. You have one who died and was raised again, and you have one who was translated, who never died. And we're in the same situation, brothers and sisters. We are part of the church, and some who have gone before us have died believing, and they are waiting for that shout when the Lord comes to the air. And it says, we will not precede them who have fallen asleep. But when he comes to the air with a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. I hope that the Lord comes back and I don't have to die. (laughs) Death is a friend in a way because it will take me to him anyway. But wouldn't it be great to be that generation that the Lord, that we're, when we're living, we hear his shout. Are you ready? Are you ready for, for that? Are you waiting today with anticipation? Lord, this could be the day when I hear that voice of the Lord for the first time. That'd be great. The disciples, they may represent the Jewish nation called by God, but slumbering while uh, in spiritual sleep. Another interesting thing about this passage is it says that Moses and Elijah, it's interesting the way it's worded, spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. When I speak of somebody's decease, it's usually past tense. I don't usually speak of somebody's decease future. Um, and it's, it's interesting, you know, that, The Lord inhabits eternity. And he spoke of his decease. He actually talks about it that before the foundation of the earth. He knew what lay ahead of him. He knew that the cross was before him. He knew that that was the pivotal point in history for all mankind. That the Lord Jesus had to die um, before he would reign. The central message of the Bible is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament points to a Savior, and only one Savior who will come and save men from their sins. The only way for that to happen was for Jesus to die on the cross in my place and in yours. The law and the prophets had pointed to this, and now it was about to be accomplished. Finally, the disciples woke up, And Peter blurted out once again, as he is known to do, how great it was for them to be there and that, Lord, we should make three booths, okay? (laughs) Let's make three altars, basically. Let's make three tabernacles for you and uh, for Elijah and for Moses, putting them all on equal ground. God, the Father, in his grace and his mercy, just hides it all, covers over the whole scene and says, this is my beloved son. Hear him, in whom I am well pleased. Everyone else vanishes from the scene, and we have Jesus alone. 
I don't know whether they thought in terms of the Feast of Tabernacles. That's what came to his mind at the time, possibly. I don't know if it was just a way of memorializing the event with a building. Could be. God doesn't want people glorying in buildings or monuments, but in his son. Should be a lesson for us in Calvary's history right now as we look to open the building next week. God isn't impressed with buildings. The building is nothing. His son is everything. And God doesn't want us to be impressed by a building, but to glorify in his son, Jesus Christ. He needs to be the focus of our attention. Peter said this, it says, not knowing what he was saying. But I'll tell you something, Peter thought about this for a very long time afterward. Years and years and years went by. He never forgot this event. And he wrote about it later in 2 Peter chapter 1. And take a look at the passage, 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. <clears throat> 2 Peter 1, 16, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Brothers and sisters, I tell you with absolute certainty this morning, Jesus is coming again. What Peter, James, and John saw was a preview of his coming in power to reign over all the earth. They saw his glory. They were eyewitnesses of his majesty. John said in uh, John 1, he also remembered the event, and he said this, We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. They saw, they heard the voice of God speaking when he said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That is the testimony of God. That is the sound that came from the cloud, which apparently was the glory cloud or the Shekinah glory, which symbolized the very presence of God. And they were with him. In other words, they were physically present when this happened. And there were three witnesses. And the scripture says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established. But the, cr the cross would come before the crown. But he will be crowned indeed as King of kings and Lord of lords. And he shall reign forever and ever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. That day is coming when the angels in heaven will say with a loud voice, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. What an experience. And again, the question I have to ask is, will you be there? Will you be there? The coming of the king is absolutely certain. And he has made all the preparations necessary for you. He speaks of it uh, in a parable this way, that it's like a wedding feast. And all the preparations have been made. And the invitation has gone out to all the world, to you, a personal invitation, come, Come to the wedding feast. Come and be with him. Come and be with him for all eternity. 
The wedding invitation has gone out. Those who know the king are compelling you to come. Come to him and be saved. And you won't be there if you don't know him. I'll tell you something. Every one of us, our time clock is ticking away. Our life is very, very short and soon will be over. The time on earth is ticking away and it won't be long before he returns. So I ask you again, will you be there? Will you be there? You can know for sure this morning. The day after the transfiguration, the Lord came down from the mountain. Luke chapter 9, verse 37. And it happened on the next day that when he had come down from the mountain, that a great multitude met him. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. Wow. (laughs) From a mountaintop experience that they had just uh, had down to the valley of human need. And so it is in the Christian life. There are days when we have great mountaintop experiences where you just almost say, Lord, just take me home now. Let it be over. And then we wake up the next day and there's just a ton of needs. Not just ours, but needs all around us. People hurting, crushing spiritual needs uh, the next day. Well, there's no exception. It says there was a crowd of people at the foot of the mountain waiting for Jesus. But one case in particular came to his attention. A man who had a son, an only child, who was demon-possessed. From the other Gospels, it's clear that the demonic activity resulted in epileptic fits, convulsions, loud cries, foaming at the mouth, physical harm, and suicidal tendencies. He was often thrown to the ground. He was thrown into the fire. He was thrown into the water by this demon that had possessed him. Demons are intent on one thing, and that is to kill and to destroy. They have no love for you. They have no love for the human race. And the father was distraught, having taken his, his son to the disciples who were uh, left behind um, when Jesus went up to the mountain and asked them to heal the son, and they couldn't. And Jesus rebuked them for their lack of faith. How long must he deal with their lack of faith? He had given them power over demons, and yet they seemed powerless to heal this child. But the Lord was not. And he healed the man's son, gave him back uh, to the father. I admit there are times in my life when I feel powerless. I am powerless. And I wonder why I am like these disciples. Powerless, faithless, defeated. Now it's not said in this passage, but in Mark's gospel, that the disciples wondered the same thing. Lord, why? Why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we heal this child? It says, And when he came into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer 
and fasting. You know, it underscores this fact that we cannot live the Christian life. We cannot be effective in ministry that the Lord has given us unless we are dependent upon the Lord. We are not lone rangers in, in Christian service. We are dependent upon the Lord and upon His instructions and upon His direction. And when we have this attitude sometimes in our hearts, and I confess I've had it and have it at times, where I can do this. I can do this on my own. Uh, you can do it on your own, excluding God? Really? Don't even try it. Don't even try it. We are dependent upon the Lord. But uh, we don't go out in our own strength, but in His. And sometimes the Lord allows us to experience defeat in our life. Sometimes He allows us to experience trouble in our life, a lack of fruitfulness in our life when we're trying to do things our way or on our own. And the spiritual exercise of prayer and fasting are a very practical way of demonstrating our need for the Lord. When you're faced with obstacles too big for you, when it seems like your whole world is headed for defeat, listen to what Paul said. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, gird, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance, and supplication for all the saints. We need to be dependent upon the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you today, as we read some of the passages of Scripture uh, this morning, we long for that day when you come and you take us home to be with you. We long for that day when you come with your saints to establish your kingdom of righteousness and peace upon this earth. We long for that day when the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We long for that day, Lord Jesus, when you are given your rightful place in the hearts and the lives of men and women uh, throughout the earth. And Lord, we just pray that as we wait for that day, that we might be fruitful and that we might be uh, effective in the ministry that you've given us. Help us, Lord, to be dependent upon you uh, in all of the work that you've given, for us, given us to do. And we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.